Hey guys, just before we jump into the episode, today we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and we extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. This episode is brought to you by the Site Collaborative, our online psychology clinic bringing good quality, accessible therapy to you in the comfort of your own home. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. I'm Amy, a psychotherapist. And I am Kat, a psychologist. And together we are the Psychology Sisters. We are a podcast dedicated to normalizing the mental health conversation. Woohoo! So today we are talking <laughs> all things, the complex relationships that we have with food. Before we get into today's chat, Katniss, beautiful, lovely, darling Katniss, how has your week been? Tell me about your pit and peak. What is the 411? <laughs> <laughs> what is the DL? <laughs> oh, I instantly think of Mean Girls where she's like, what is the 411? Yeah. I'm a cool mom. It's <laughs> <laughs> the fugliest fucking skirt I've ever seen. Um, 411. Put it is- in the burn book, honey. You let it out. <laughs> Cool mom. Oh gosh, what a journey that was. Thank you, beautiful Ames. Amesy, as I like to call you from now on. Um, (laughs) See, my week has been wonderful. I have had a really nice, I've been very much enjoying the four day weeks Mm. that I feel like we've had in Australia. I've had three consecutive weeks of four day weeks work weeks, which has been amazing. It's not often you and I give ourselves much of a break. So it was nice to have a break, but my definite peak, and I'm wondering if you'll share the same. It's okay if you don't, but like, (laughs) (laughs) I'd kind of expect you to. No, I'm just kidding. No, my definite peak is you and I went up to Byron for the long weekend and it was Honestly, the best weekend I have had in such a long time. And I say that with so much honesty because you and I just, when we hang out, (laughs) we just do all the things that we love. It is so nice to reconnect and to spend time with you, with my little bestie and just do all the things that we love. We swam, we shopped, we horse rode, we boogied and we had the best time. So Thank you for spending your long weekend with me, Ames. I had an absolute blast, but also that kind of brings me into my pit of, (laughs) I spoke about it earlier when you and I were up in Byron, Ames loves to horse ride, right? So I thought, you know what? (laughs) As a good best friend, I will, you know, buy her a little horse riding adventure. I'll come along with her and I'll kind of learn a little bit more about her love for horses. I myself not really a horse rider. In fact, I'm a little bit spooked around horses, but you know what? The things you do for love. (laughs) (laughs) So, surprised you with a little horse riding adventure. And honestly, I haven't been that scared in a very long time. Horses are big and they're spooky and you have a lot of faith in an animal that's easily spooked. So, Amy gets on and she's this beautiful horse rider. She just knew what she was doing. She just kicked into gear. She's cantering. I'm walking. (laughs) What's the walk called? Like, what's the slowest pace called? Uh, A walk. Is it just a walk? Yeah. (laughs) Slow, slow, (laughs) very slow walk. 
and I get on and I'm walking and I'm like, okay, like, you know, my heart's racing when I'm trying to act cool. I think that's the, that's the funniest part of this. I was like, this is so fun, Amesy. Like, love is for us. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, the instructor's this like, okay. This is so fun, right. Amesy, as you're, you're turning pale, like colour is drained from your face. White knuckle screaming. fever. <laughs> Internally screaming. So, anyway. The instructor's like beautiful Brazilian instructor is like, all right, now I'm going to get this up to a trot. And I was like, oh God, what's a trot? Okay, what do I do here? A trot is like a fast walk, right? And a trot is actually really hard. I I found a trot really quite spooky. And it's actually, when you're looking at it from the ground, it's like a fast walk. It's nothing. It's, it's like a jog. <laughs> it's a it's brisk like a bouncy walk. jog. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Anyway, and I was like, okay, like, this is it. This is the end of my capacity to cope with, like, a really stressful situation. Bouncing around in this horse. I'm not sure where to sit. I, I can't hold on. Anyway, <laughs> I see Amy. She's killing it as always. And then the instructor's like, all right guess what we get to do now? And I was like, oh, shit. What do we get to do now? And she's like, we are going to canter. We're going we're gonna to try and practice a canter. And I know from my saddle club knowledge that a canter is not a good thing. <laughs> I know a canter is, is – it's a sprint. <laughs> so, I was like, oh, God. I was screaming on the inside. I was not coping. I started to cold sweat. Anyway, and <laughs> – and they were like, does anyone not want to do it? And I was like, oh, God, I don't want to look like the biggest wolves here. But I was like, I kind of don't want to do it. But must impress Amesy. Must do this for love. So, did a little bit of a canter. Did almost wee my pants. Almost fell off, I will say. Almost fell off a few times. But look, the main thing is we got through. So, that was my pit. It was so fun um, getting off the horse. That was really fun for me. <laughs> Having a, a cheeky drink after. But... Honestly, it was so nice to have that experience with you. I'll probably never do that again, but <laughs> nice to share your love for you. But talk to me, Ames, what is your pit and peak of the week? Well, I did thoroughly enjoy my little birthday treat. That that was Kat's birthday gift to me and it was she nailed it. It was it was perfect. It was everything my little heart desired and more. And I'm so lucky and so appreciative that I got to spend more than anything, just that time with you for four days with you doing silly goose things and just having fun and being playful, like, you know, frolicking around in the ocean, just doing, doing silly goose things was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember us spinning around in the ocean. You know how kids, you know how kids are like, mom, Torpedo. watch this spin. <laughs> We did that. I was like, you're like, Kat, watch this spin as she spins in the ocean. Yeah, that was really fun. <laughs> I'm very cool. Yes. So, so and then the horse riding was a real hoot, horsing around. It, it was amazing. I've loved horse riding since I was about three years old. So, getting to relive um, some really beautiful you know, I guess childhood things was really great. And I loved getting to do it with Kat. And, you know, the comedy on the side of of watching cat <laughs> try to be cool <laughs> was yeah it was, <laughs> it was it was a great time it's like it's like imagine a beautiful goddess with her hair in the wind like just cantering oh, around stop. like looking so beautiful and then imagine a court jester on a little <laughs> pony struggling like <laughs> 
fearing for her life, like falling off the side of this poor, poor horse. That's what you and I looked like, you know, yeah. horse riding troop. It, it was kind of one of those days where the motto would have been, look, if Brittany 2007 can can do can do that, she can get through 2007, you could get through horse riding. Oh, God. You could do it and still <laughs> and still have your hair intact. Um, no, you, uh, you absolutely nailed it. And <laughs> very, 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 very appreciative that I got to share that with you. My pit has been coming back to a bit of a reality slap after having time off. I, I don't know if um, you can relate to this, cat, but it has just been a little bit difficult to get my butt into gear this week after having a, a bit of a silly goose time. I've just found myself struggling a little bit with focus and feeling a little bit frazzled and dazed coming off the little high of, of having a beautiful weekend away and allowing myself to relax and then, yeah, trying to get back into the swing of things has <laughs> been a little bit challenging but other than that just yeah still still you know when you have a really good weekend away or, or just really good times in general and you'll be going about your day and then all of a sudden like a little memory will pop into your mind like you'll mm-hmm. have almost like a little fun flashback of something funny that's happened. I've been doing that a lot so I'll catch myself doing you know like admin work and then remember something funny that happened and laugh. So, like, I'm, I'm still riding the high. Mm. I'm still smiling from the weekend. My brain is still very much in holiday mode, which is not great for my productivity, but amazing for my little soul. <laughs> yes, I feel like focus has been – we're just chatting about this off mic, like, this week. It's just been – Coming back, trying to focus, bring yourself back after a nice weekend because you know what happens is your body and your nervous system starts to regulate and calm down and then it's like, oh, cool, wow, we're on holiday, this is so nice and then it's just like just when it calms down and you can finally start to relax, it's like jokes, back to work, Mm. back to like full-time work, back to running a business and it's like, whoa, so still trying to catch up. So, I feel you on so many levels, Ames, with Mm. the lack of focus. Mm, gone. I didn't feel you there. Gone. Zero. Nada. Zip. But enough about us. Today, we are wanting to have a bit of an episode around our complex and multidimensional relationship with food. So, just before we do jump into this episode, we just want to give a bit of a trigger warning here. Today, we'll be discussing disordered eating and eating disorders. If this topic is triggering for you in any way, shape or form, we do strongly suggest that you do just skip past this episode. But let's jump into it, Ames. Why is this important? Why are we chatting about this today? Well, one of the reasons we are chatting about this topic today is because we have a very exciting collaboration with Equolution. We have decided to jump on board with their eight-week mind and body challenge. And I guess this is an area that Kat and I are particularly passionate about when we talk about relationship with body and self. I remember years ago, maybe even when we first started the podcast, Kat, we were talking about mood food and the significance around our Mm -hmm. relationship with food and just the huge impact uh, what we eat has on our mental health and not only just that in terms of the biochemical effect food has 
in terms of our relationship with our body, but also the psychological and emotional role that our relationship with food has. So, because food is something that is part of our survival, part of our everyday existence, talking about it and understanding our relationship with food is just so important. Mm, absolutely. We thought this would be such a good time to jump in and you know, share this episode and to deep dive more into relationship with food. Considering our mood food episode was quite a while ago, so ready to bring it back. Bring it back. Bring it back, baby. All right. So, Ames, talk to me about relationship with food. What is a relationship with food? How can we have a relationship with food? Okay. So, I think a lot of the work that I do around exploring relationship with food will come back to attachment and childhood experiences. I think it's really important to understand the significant role that childhood trauma can play in the development of distorted eating patterns or having a negative relationship with food. Essentially, attachment is our blueprint or our map for how we relate to the world and food is something that we can have a relationship with. So, looking at even styles of attachment like disorganized, ambivalent and avoidant styles. Um, Often this can stem from essentially how we were parented. So thinking about needs, anything from our really basic physical needs like physical nourishment, feeling satiated, getting our really basic um, nutrients, vitamins and minerals that we need to physically survive. Um, I like to think of attachment as like physical hunger. Yeah. So, we have these really fundamental, crucial needs and sometimes when they're not met, we essentially starve for them. So, attachment can really play a pivotal role when our childhood attachment needs aren't met. And can be a really quite common pathway to distorted eating as well, where we will tend to, I guess, develop adaptive strategies when those needs aren't met. So emotional neglect is actually quite common um, when it comes to looking at our relationship with with food and how different patterns can play out um, when it comes to avoidance or ambivalence or anxiety. But what about you, Kat? How would you describe our relationship with food? Yes, I certainly echo what you say in that, yes, the the way that you were brought up certainly can have an impact on the way that we relate to food. But I mean, as well, I mean, we our relationship with food can be so complex and impacted by so many factors, you know, our childhood and our upbringing and our attachment is one of those. But I also find things like our, you know, biology, the way that food was spoken when we were growing up, um, diet culture, I think all of those things, you know, such a huge and um, interactive, you know, um, perception of how we see food. So, some of us may experience a very neutral relationship with food whereby we might see food as fuel and we have perhaps neither significantly positive nor negative feelings around food. Perhaps there isn't an emotional attachment around food. Some of us may have a negative or ambivalent relationship with food whereby we might create an emotional attachment with food and this might actually manifest as turning to food when we experience emotion or comfort eating or we may view food as a direct contributor to shaping our perception of around how our body looks. And this type of ambivalence can manifest actually into disordered eating and eating disorders, such as binge eating disorders, orthorexia, anorexia, etc. So, 
For some, though, on on the flip side of that, some may view food quite positively, whereby they may take immense pleasure in eating food and in eating behaviours as well culturally. Food has a really big impact culturally and can become a focal point of increasing connection and as a way of expressing love is through food. So some of us may experience all of those relationships with food at different stages in our life. We may feel there are times where we have a pretty positive and healthy relationship with food and there might be times where we feel we don't have as you know functional or healthy relationship with food so you know i, I think it's good to note here that you know we don't, we're not often born believing food is good nor bad it's the meaning and emotions we can sometimes attach to food that changes our perception of it and changes our relationship with food so ames talk to me about factors that can impact on our relationship so how is our relationship with food formed Mm, I, I think, as you mentioned, Kat, definitely culture can play a really pivotal mm. role in shaping how we relate to food. In particular, Western culture has a high value placed on being really independent, a lot of uh, achievement-focused values placed that often means that we are generally speaking, quite emotionally deprived as our value is usually placed on uh, achievement and success over connection. Uh, We have a culture that is very appearance focused. So oftentimes fat phobia and body shaming can really play a role in how we relate to food. Uh, As you were saying, if if food is something that is connected to our physical appearance, I think too sexualization and body objectification can play a role in how we accept our body and therefore how we relate to food because I guess essentially that love will be conditional based around how our body looks. So culture, also temperament and traits. So family attitudes Mm -hmm. and diet focus in family, children can notice these messages indirectly. It can be something really, really simple that can filter down to a culture of thinness where we can really internalize these messages from an early age. Those that are anxious or highly sensitive and empathic uh, in temperament uh, are like little walking barometers that notice what other people are feeling and if we feel emotions quite intensely as you mentioned Kat food can sometimes be a way of mediating really intense emotions Uh, if we have a punishment and reward sensitivity in terms of temperament food can actually be a really tangible way that we might self-sabotage and punish things that we believe are wrong about us so filtering into a little bit of a shame based narrative there perfectionism is extraordinarily strong across eating disorder diagnostic Mm. groups people who have really perfectionistic control-based temperament can, can sometimes have a lot of comorbidities around distorted eating. I think too also your eating style in, in terms of stress. So for some, appetite can really increase uh, in response to psychological distress and again be used as an adaptive strategy to mediate stress that comes up. And things like impulsivity and compulsivity can come in there. Things like avoidance. If we are naturally on the avoidant end of the spectrum, food can be a way of avoiding, dissociating, emotionally numbing uh, events and experiences that we just don't have capacity to cope with. Also, if we are a little bit higher on the proprioceptive body awareness and interoceptive body awareness is, is quite common for disordered eating patterns or a negative relationship with food. And that essentially just means those that are more sensitive to changes going on in our body. And this can be really overwhelming. You know, when clients become 
really anxious about physiological changes in their body. So things like health anxiety can actually mm-hmm. really play a role in this as well. And I, I guess body factors that are pertinent. So things like body dissatisfaction and, and sometimes stumbling across weight loss through illness. You know, if we experience an illness that is completely non-related to mental health that results in significant weight loss and we receive a lot of positive praise around wow you know you've lost so much weight you look great that can actually be a little bit of a byproduct for a pathway in a negative relationship with food and then obviously going into deeper things like parenting styles, such as uh, guilt-inducing parenting, both implicit and explicit messages, punitive or critical parenting, unavailable, passive or absent parents. Emotional neglect is really, really common with distorted eating patterns and, and negative relationship with food. And it's a intergenerational patterns so that proximate separation you know present physically but not emotionally so the child learns you know not to rely on parents because they end up feeling like they're a burden due to parents feeling anxious and overwhelmed with their own emotions so there's a sense of taking up too much space by having needs and it's very subtle but that absence of attunement and warmth can sometimes create a little bit of a feeling of of not being understood or, or not getting what I really need and so needing to fix the problem so child learns adaptive strategies like control or minimizing needs and turning to something like food as a way of coping with that even things like um, not even emotional neglect or absence around parents even experiences of bullying and social isolation uh, can be really common experiences for those that go on to develop unhealthy relationships with food or, or eating disorders because it's like that conditional experience. So fixing the wrong things about me by going to to food as a way of coping. Mm, yeah, I think very spot on aims. Very well said. Something to note. I think when we're exploring our relationship with food is understanding the processes underneath it. I think AIM's so spot on with when we speak about how was food spoken about, how was it related to through childhood? And I think that's such an interesting question. And I wonder if this is something that does come up for you when working with clients is usually that's where you go to first when, when perhaps there is some ambivalent relationship with food. We may ask, well, where did that, where, where did you learn that? Where did that come from? And I think it's really interesting to note here that even if your parents spoke to you with love and kindness and provided you a really positive relationship with food, often that the way that they spoke to themselves mm. may have been quite different. And I think that's so interesting to note because I'll talk to clients and say, "What? where did that come from? What's your relationship with food? And they might say, well, I've always had a good relationship with food. You know, mum and dad were really supportive and, you know, didn't you know, always encourage me to eat healthy and, and exercise and all of those things. But then when we ask about, well, what was your parents' relationship with food, you know, away from the child – that's when, you you know, clients may notice, oh, oh, yeah, I guess I am mirroring their own eating behaviors, their own eating patterns. Even if that wasn't said or spoken to the child, children do pick up on those really mirroring behaviors, right? They do really start to model how mum and dad react around food, you know, is perhaps how the child may start to react and respond around food. And I think that's really interesting to note here. A lot of people feel, you know, everything's fine. <laughs> I have a quite a positive relationship with food growing up and it's, well, let's actually look at what was else was going on around you? What were you seeing? What you're experiencing in your childhood? And I think that's such an interesting thing to mm-hmm. take note of when questioning your own relationship with food is, is not how was it spoken to you and 
but how was it shown to you through other people is I think really something good to reflect on with with curiosity when reflecting on your relationship with food. I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a really good point to be curious around those indirect messages uh, that we can sometimes unconsciously internalize around conditional acceptance. So, learning that, okay, there Mm. is a right or wrong body weight, shape, size, and eating as a way that I can mediate that to gain acceptance, approval, reassurance, etc., that I'm good enough, worthy, that kind of thing. Because even kind of going back to what we were saying around culture, and in particular Western culture, oftentimes because that is so appearance-based, that is a way that we'll, we'll really experience whether we are loved, accepted, approved of, mm-hmm. um, etc. So, if you know, if mum doesn't love herself because her body looks this way mm-hmm. and she's always on a diet fixing herself, trying to change herself, the things that aren't good enough, that then becomes an indirect internalisation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's like, well, if mum doesn't love the way she looks, then why – why would I love the way I look, you know, because, mm. you know, when we're born, how people look, body image and food is neutral. It's completely neutral. We do not care what people look like when we are born. Mm. We have such neutral messaging around that. So, when we attach, you know, feelings around, oh, mum is critical of body or there must be a right or wrong way to look, we then start to think that for ourselves, right? Like, oh, perhaps there is a right or wrong way for my body to look or, or maybe I should change the way that I look if, if mum or dad aren't liking the way that they look mm. so yeah it's that messaging it's that that messaging that continues to reinforce our relationship with food that's really subliminal sometimes mm. and really interesting to take note of here yeah absolutely you ask a little two-year-old how they feel about their body and they'll be like oh my gosh you know i have I have a tummy my belly button you know mm. my, my little legs and then you ask a 12 year old the same questions and and by that age unfortunately usually there's a very different narrative Mm, yeah, it goes from the very factual, I have arms and I have legs mm. and I have a belly to I have fat arms or have mm. big arms or small arms, whatever it might be. Like it starts to, we start to attach those those criticisms and perceptions of self, you know, the older that we get by from what we learn. Interestingly, I find this really interesting to help explain the impact of Western culture on, on our perception of body is in those very isolated tribal cultures there isn't instances or there is a much reduced presentation of disordered eating and eating disorders. Isn't that interesting? Because food perhaps may feel a bit more neutral in those cultures. So, something to take note of is how important it is our culture and the way that food is modelled around us that can help shape our relationship with food. I do want to touch on the interplay of neurological and emotional processing in shaping our relationship with food. I just think this is such an interesting thing to touch on. Amzie chatted about before, but the reward system. The reward system is so important in learning about why, how food goes from a very basic biological need to an emotional need. You know, what is the connection there? Why does that exist? So, when we eat food, our reward system, our brain is activated and a really good feel-good neurotransmitter called dopamine is released. Dopamine is a really good feeling chemical. We get it when we're shopping. We get it when we're maybe for Amy riding horses. Um, it just feels good, right? 
Certain foods, particularly those high in sugars and fat, our brain loves and it perceives that as a reward. And this triggers the release of dopamine and our brain learns the association between the stimulus and the reward. So, several neurotransmitters, including dopamine, as well as neuropeptides involved in the regulation of food intake, are implicated in the rewarding effects of food. So, what does this mean? Well, quite simply, our reward system operates in a way that means we form more emotional connections with food, even without hunger cues as a way to, you know, regulate emotionally, which is interesting. So, due to this, due to the feeling that food gives us when we're eating, for those who do have perhaps more of an ambivalent relationship with food, the after effects of eating certain foods can create cycles of guilt and shame, making us often feel worse. This means that we may turn to food as a way to seek comfort, to escape stress, to avoid feelings or to avoid difficult situations, as Ames was talking about, rather than when we actually feel hungry. So, I think it's interesting to note here that for people who perhaps have this more ambivalent relationship with food, have that emotional connection because of the neurological processes that are happening underneath because dopamine is a really nice feeling and for some of us, we turn to food as a way to increase our dopamine. Something to note here is I work a lot with adult ADHD and ADHD is usually the result of low dopamine in our brain and people who experience adult ADHD, particularly the hyperactive presentation, notice they have a much higher impulsivity around food. And often it is a predictor for binge eating because food is a quick, (laughs) easy, accessible and cheap way of increasing our dopamine. So I think that's really interesting to note is the impact of dopamine and why we have this emotional connection with food. Ames, you mentioned something earlier about control. And I I really wanted to chat about this because a lot of our eating behaviors can act as a moderator for control. Essentially, when the world around us feels really out of control and disordered, food for some can be the only thing that is within our control. We often may see clients who present with feelings of powerlessness and feelings of disorder and feeling out of control as a predictor for eating disorders or even disordered eating for restricting, for binging, for purging. So, Often disordered eating behaviours and an ambivalent relationship with food often are much less to do with food and body image and and rather a way of just coping with our external worlds. And I think control is really important to mention here as a way to just reflect on is how does control interact with your your eating behaviours? Yeah, absolutely. That is really, really important and interesting to mention. Moving into some questions that we got from some lovely listeners. Kat, how can I stop calorie counting? Okay. So, just quickly, just remember, guys, this isn't personalized psychological advice. This is general advice only. So, just want to remind you guys of that. How can I stop calorie counting? Really good question. Uh, one that does seem to come up a lot. I'm not sure if you feel like this aims with clients. I think reflecting with curiosity out uh, you know, what's at the bottom of this? Why are you calorie counting? Is this to reach a certain body image? Is it because you'd like to look different? Is it because you'd like to feel different? I think just reflecting on the why is so important to managing this behavior and and wanting to change it. So, you're asking, how can I stop calorie counting? And I think it's about, well, let's look at what it's functioning for you as. Does it function as a way of control? Does it function as a way to get you closer to your goals? I would 
like to also ask this person, how does calorie counting feel for you? What feelings does it bring you to calorie count? What happens if you stray away from calorie counting? I know calorie counting is a lot about reaching numbers and macros and all of those things, but what happens for you when you don't meet those things, meet those goals? What could happen if you stopped? What feelings might come up if you stopped doing this? Because often the thing that keeps us in a cycle of a behavior, even one that feels quite unhelpful, is the fear of what would happen if we stopped. You know, the fear of perhaps are you fearful of losing control, of not reaching goals if you stop calorie counting. So I think that'd be something really interesting to reflect on uh, with curiosity. What are your thoughts on that, Ames? Yeah, beautiful. I, I, I agree. Okay. All right. Question number two, Ames, tips on how to avoid body checking. Okay. So, I actually have a, a similar perspective in working with this with clients as what you were just saying around calorie counting, understanding where it comes from first. So rather than that, why am I body checking or why can't I stop body checking or how is this functioning for me? So very, very similar looking at themes around control here. So when we have adaptive coping strategy like control, that really functions to create a sense of safety. And and it's a pseudo control through getting, I guess, different behavioral rules and actions ticked off as a way of, okay, well, if I just do this and I just look like this, then I keep myself safe. So control through getting things right and and getting needs met in a safe way. And often this is a very conditional understanding of how we relate to ourselves, how we're relating to our body and how we're relating to food. And what I mean by that, it's this kind of thinking of, oh, if I was better, not enoughness, undeservingness can really be at the roots here. Uh, Sometimes it can really be linked to emotional deprivation, abandonment as a way to overcompensate by trying to get a sense of achievement to develop lacking self-worth or self-esteem. So really looking at, okay, well, how am I feeling about myself? How am I relating to myself in in this sense? Oftentimes it can be really linked to habit energy, like Kat was just explaining around our dopamine system, around our reward system, getting a hit of dopamine and achievement when my body looks the right, quote unquote, weight, shape, size, and and really focusing on fixing things that promote that sense of of a achievement and success and control in this way. Oftentimes it can be for people that have learnt to cope uh, with a lot of hyper-independence. So when family life has been really unstable, the solution is, well, I rely on my own rules for security and certainty and safety to compensate for the, the unmet needs. So rules essentially replace emotional guidance that I didn't get. So it, it sounds really simple, a body checking, but what is it actually give me and what is it functioning to mediate how am I coping with what what difficult emotions are coming up for me so things like fear shame vulnerability embarrassment actually another way of looking at this which often comes up in my work with clients is control in the opposite sense of it's actually a way of attacking myself so when we have quite a strong core belief 
that is really driven by shame and unconscious messages around shame and guilt-inducing inner critics, control can actually be a way of attacking parts of myself to atone for perceived wrongness or wrong parts of me, parts of me that I don't accept. Okay, so when we're checking parts of our body, really paying attention to the thoughts and emotions and beliefs I have around parts of me that I feel like I can't fix or change and that are the wrong parts of me. Um, That can sometimes be uh, linked to core beliefs about self as well and and also control as a a, a function that gives us hope uh, which can make it really difficult to let go of really really hard to let go of that control can give us that sense of hope for if I just keep doing this or if I just keep following these rules that allow me to feel safe and certain then I will be okay that I will be safe here so looking at that too. And we have a, have a similar question around binge eating and eating disorders and, and food addiction that I think really relates to this because there is a lot of stigma and shame around food addiction and that narrative of, you know, why can't I just stop eating or, or different behaviors like why can't I just stop calorie counting or why can't I just, you know, avoid body checking. I think sometimes we can feel a, a lot of yeah, if it's around food, we can feel a lot of that gluttony and disgust towards self that really comes up. But I think with with any kind of addiction or adaptive coping strategy, it's about understanding instead of oh, not why the addiction, but what is this functioning to give me? You know, what is it that I'm seeking relief from? You know, often addiction is a coping strategy to escape intolerable experiences. So looking at, well, well, what does this give me? You know, is it comfort? Is it a temporary high control? You know, where are these themes familiar in my life? Often it's about trying to control or restrict needs and emotions that weren't met in, in childhood experiences. So I think sometimes it can be really difficult, but oftentimes something I will talk about with clients is that Working on these coping strategies often involves a a level of suffering both physiologically and emotionally because they've been really effective at allowing you to cope with what you were going through in a time when you had no other resources available. So there's no quick fix, um, essentially. And that can be, yeah, really, really challenging to work through and oftentimes I know you probably find this as well, Kat, but oftentimes this is why it can be really, really tricky to recover and work on these behaviours like body checking and calorie counting because they have actually been really, really effective at allowing you to cope with something. Yes, 100%. They're operating to function in a way to do something. And one thing as well, Ames, so beautifully said, fear, you know, often changes to our body we can perceive as threatening. You mm. know, if we're feeling as though we need to be a certain way or look a certain way, changes to that can be quite threatening because if my body looks different, what does this say about my worthiness? Yeah, a lot of people do have that link and correlation with the way that my body looks and my lovability and my worthiness. So often if there is any changes, the function of body checking can operate with the idea of sensing threat and perceiving threat, right? And it can, yeah, certainly act to intensify feelings that your body is imperfect, increase the feeling of losing control. And how often, you know, do you look in the mirror sometimes when you are perhaps looking at your body 
And perhaps there are times when you don't like what you look like and you have that instant self-assessment and that instant need the next day, right, to be like, well, tomorrow I go to the gym, (laughs) I'll reduce my food intake. You know, often our body checking is a way of trying to moderate how we're feeling and come up with a bit of a plan because if we don't like how we're looking, our brain loves to make sense of things and come up with plans to how to feel better within ourselves. So, I think body checking is an interesting, interesting behavior. And I really want to note here that it can be symptomatic and can be an early warning sign of an eating disorder or an anxiety disorder such as OCD. So, if you're someone who's experiencing this and it is impacting on your life, Ames and I will always, always recommend that you do seek some support around this and get some professional guidance around managing body checking and checking behaviors. Okay. Question number three. Eating disorders, binge eating, and food addiction are not really addressed. Can you guys address that? Ames, what have you got for me? I think this is such an important question to unpack because there is so much stigma and shame around food addiction. Like I mentioned, there is that narrative around, oh, I'm disgusting because I can't I can't stop eating. What's wrong with me? And there's, there's a lot, a lot of shame rooted in food addiction. I work with a, a lot of clients around that. And like I mentioned earlier, I often refer to attachment as like physical hunger because we starve for our needs. When they're not nourished, we really crave those needs. So, when we have experiences of traumatic childhoods, our adaptions to unmet needs follow us into adulthood. When emotions become unbearable, sometimes we free ourselves temporarily through addiction to soothe those hungers essentially so often those that might experience binge eating patterns describe a dissociative response that binge eating can give them so it allows them to feel a sense of temporary euphoria they feel soothed comforted it mediates anxiety essentially it allows us to disconnect from what might be uncomfortable or painful and as Kat was mentioning the neurobiology around that is we get a lovely hit of dopamine It feels really, really good in the moment and then it's followed by a lot of shame. So, it kind of creates this shame cycle that can keep us really, really stuck. And I guess like I mentioned before, food is a substance just like alcohol or drugs um, that really affects our brain's neurobiology and we crave it. Yeah, because of the effects that it has on us, not only the neurobiology around it, but but also the emotional effect. It gives us that temporary relief from pain. The difference is we can abstain from from drugs and alcohol, but every day mm. we need to face the substance of food. So, if food is your relief, if food is your way of self-soothing, if that's how you cope with stress and intolerable experiences, it can be so, so tricky to navigate because we can live without drinking and drugs. However, we can't actually live without food. We need it to survive. Mm. So, so that can be really tricky too. And where there is this paradox is because it's often about escaping having needs that weren't met in childhood and you know, ha- having to rely on something that is is quite fundamental to our physical needs. So that recovery again with suffering both physiologically and emotionally, and then not being a quick fix, I think is a really good way to explain how food addiction can really be quite consuming 
in terms of coping with childhood traumas, attachment injury, stress, anxiety, depression, is it's not about why the food, but it's a, it's about why the pain. Okay, so what is it that that person is seeking relief from? You know, often addiction is a coping strategy to escape intolerable experiences. So I think rather than looking at food being the issue or the problem or the wrong thing, it is looking at, okay, well, understanding how does food allow me to cope with what I'm going through in response to anxiety, distress, trauma, and and things like that. What about you, Kat? Nothing to add, Ames. Very well said. We want to go into some questions around general tips for healthy relationships with food and body. So something that I think could be really helpful here to take note of as I hope that Ames and I have probably said this enough throughout the episode is really taking the time to mindfully reflect on your relationship with food. You know, if food was a person, how would you describe your relationship with them? Would it feel like a really healthy reciprocal relationship? Would it feel really unhealthy? Would it feel really ambivalent? You know, what are your feelings towards food? I I think just some questions and I know we always have strategies but I think questions here are really important because they really make you explore and understand and sit with exploring your relationship with food so do you see foods as inherently good or bad where did that come from you know do you restrict foods why what's at the bottom of that perhaps people might say well I want to lose weight why (laughs) let's go deeper (laughs) Ames and I always like let's go deeper why do you want to look a certain way what are you trying to achieve there what do you think will happen if you looked a certain way yeah do I turn to food other than when I'm hungry when are those times are there patterns here what emotion might I be avoiding you know when I turn to food what am I trying to cope with in those moments how am I feeling in in my world at the moment do I feel like I have control of my world or does my world feel really disordered and out of control where did I learn about body image? You know, what was spoken around to me as I was growing up around bodies and food? What was modeled to me around food? Just some questions that I think would be really helpful to think about and reflect on if you're listening to this episode and you're thinking, you know, what is my relationship with food is, is asking yourselves these questions, you know, asking and, and really getting familiar with where this all came from and where it started and, and how it's perpetuating in life. You know, do you avoid foods? Do you have fear around foods? You know, what is your relationship with your body like? You know, these are all really interesting starting points that I want you guys to reflect on when you're listening to this episode. And as well, uh, just a really practical tip is mindful eating. Eating. I know Ames and I think I think we spoke about this in our mood food episode, but mindfulness is a wonderful way to gain a deeper understanding and start to change your relationship with food. So just as the name suggests, mindful eating means being mindful and it, it means paying attention to our eating habits and our experience of eating food. So it might look like sitting in an environment where you're distraction free. This might mean no screens and finding a quiet environment, aiming to have a sensory experience around food. So eating slowly, noticing the smells, tastes, textures and flavors of your foods. Take your time with eating and focus how it makes you feel. Yeah, I think as well, there's so many different exercises you can do around mindful eating, but I think having a sensory experience, how does it feel? How does it taste? How does it smell? Taking your time, slowing that process down and also just reflecting mindfully in other parts of your, you know, your eating and food behaviors of 
you know, what is my thoughts around this food? You know, am I avoiding certain food groups? You know, all of those mindful questions will be helpful here. So, Ames, what are your thoughts? What are some other kind of tips for developing healthy relationships with food? Oh, I love, 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 love your tips and those beautiful reflective questions. Only couple of things that I might add to that. I agree. There are lots of things that we could go into here. Um, I think it's really important for clients to recognize that these coping strategies are working really, really hard to protect them. I know it can be really challenging when working with unhealthy relationships with food or distorted eating patterns because it can feel like you're really, really stuck. It can feel like you're stuck in the obsessional thoughts about weight, shape, size eating it can feel like you're you have this really overwhelming urge to perform the behavior that has kept you safe body checking calorie counting restricting compulsive exercise ritualized binge eating in order to bring that temporary relief from anxiety or or guilt or hopelessness or dread so this behavior does become really reinforced over time And they are effective coping strategies and that's why they're so tricky. So, I think bringing in self-compassion here can be really, really helpful in really understanding that these aren't bad, wrong parts of you to be ashamed of. These parts have had really, really protective intentions and those chemical processes are reinforced with addictive components. So, of course, it feels really hard. And these parts have been really effective. So I think having that compassionate connection to self when you're working through new ways of being with you, you know, in order to begin change these behaviors, you know, it's really important to recognize that these these patterns have become part of an overactive brain circuit. Okay, so this has been a very functional part in keeping you safe and having that compassionate connection, that understanding, being able to recognize that can be really, really helpful in slowly taking steps to work on some of the challenges that can come up in distorted eating patterns and I really agree with you, Kat, around mindfulness. I think something that I will do with my clients is look at the wheel of awareness or their interceptive mindfulness, you know, body-based exercises that can really increase capacity to be receptive and to tolerate vulnerability and uncertainty that comes with creating new ways of coping with things like stress and anxiety or trauma because sometimes – you know, like we mentioned, control is, is is not an easy thing to try and adjust or change or shift and it's designed to increase our safety. So, sometimes working on these things can actually feel quite destabilizing and can sometimes even increase our anxiety. Oftentimes, when working with distorted eating patterns, what can be really tricky is it's like I want to get better, but also I don't want to let go of the feelings of safety and certainty that these coping strategies give me. So that can be really, really tricky too. And working with body-based practices or mindfulness practices um, to really help regulate our nervous system, to notice anxiety and panic where threat is detected, being able to self-soothe around triggers, you know, creating that mind-body connection to feel safe and to be able to trust my body signals is another thing that can really come up as a block around recovery, especially when these coping strategies are rooted in shame. 
you know, being quite angry at my body around traumas, uh, for example, sexual assault. Sometimes what can happen is is we can be really angry at our body for not keeping us safe and there can be a lot of blame and shame around that and it can result in, in distorted eating patterns around attacking our body. So, yeah, not going too much into that, but I think understanding you know, emotional needs and being able to regulate our nervous system accordingly for that deep attunement is a really important way of working with our relationship with with our body as well. So well said, Ames. I love that. I love the compassion side to things because it's so important to note that your relationship with food serves a function. It's understanding what that function is and slowly and compassionately changing that if it isn't serving you. So love that, Ames. So beautifully said. Guys, I'm sorry we didn't get to get to all of your questions today. We had a lot coming in and we've only got such limited time. But thank you guys so much for writing in as always. We hope that you feel more understood and you've come away from this episode learning a little bit more about relationship with food. Ames and I will be back in a few weeks to go into another episode. But thank you guys so much for tuning in and we'll be back in your ears soon. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kat, for your pearls of wisdom and for joining me as always. We hope you love today's episode and looking forward to bringing you more in the future. (laughs) All right, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you're not already, please follow us on Instagram at The Psychology Sisters. We are also now providing online psychological sessions. For more information, please follow us at The Psych Collaborative. See you next time.